0: And you hear that the, the the best coaches, if you ask them about potential, the first thing they usually say is that the young person trying to get into the sport is open to learning. Mm-hmm. They're good students, you know, and what that means is that they are willing to listen and they're willing to be vulnerable. Right. And of course, it's the same thing in therapy, and you know, it's the same thing in uh in, in coaching and all of that.
1: Welcome to Mindful Warrior Radio. Mindful Warrior Radio is the space we created to connect with incredible humans, to share brave stories, authentic insight, and real knowledge. My name is Cami Craig. I'm a former elite athlete, Olympic champion, turned performance and culture design coach at Mindful Warrior, and I'm your host of Mindful Warrior Radio. Today on Mindful Warrior Radio, we welcome our guest, Dr. Lou Cozzolino. Dr. Cozzolino practices psychotherapy and consulting psychology in Beverly Hills, California. He received his PhD in clinical psychology from UCLA and an MTS from Harvard University. He's been a professor at Pepperdine since 1986 and lectures around the world on psychotherapy, neuroscience, trauma, and attachment. With more than 30 years of experience as a psychotherapist and coach, Lou works with adults, adolescents, and families as they face a wide variety of life's challenges. Lou's primary method as a therapist is one of connection, attunement, and interaction. I am honored and eager to tap into all the knowledge and insight of Dr. Lou Cozzolino on today's episode of Mindful Warrior Radio. Well, Lou, thank you so much for joining us on Mindful Warrior Radio today. I'm so excited to tap into your insight and knowledge and share all that you have to offer with our listeners.
0: Okay, good to be with you.
1: Mm, Thank you. I wanted to start by asking you I know that uh, Mindful Warrior comes from the world of executive coaching, Mm -hmm. and you yourself have um, been in a practice of psychotherapy, therapy, and coaching yourself. Mm -hmm. And I thought it would be helpful to start by your definition of the difference between therapy and coaching
0: that question comes up just about every day yes um and people are you know people are are curious and i i always feel like when i'm describing the difference that i'm engaging in creative fiction right but i mean i was trained as a therapist and you know taking the as as a psychodynamic therapist and taking the deep dives into um into background history, all of those things. And I guess the, you know, in psychotherapy, there's a spinoff, you know the this the spinoff of of successful therapy is being more successful in life, as Freud would say, you know, to love and work. And so uh, successful therapy will result in improvements in these other things. And so it's a matter of focus, I think, with and with coaching, what you're trying to do, I think, on the surface, generally, at least at the outset, what you want to do is is use, uh, you know, professional performance as the focus, and then issues about childhood unresolved trauma, psychological disorders, whatever those those things are sort of in the background, and they're in the service of helping people perform in the way they want to at work or in sports or whatever you know whatever it is they're engaged in. But it's sort of like a figure-ground shift. It's it's sort of like it. Um, it's like one of those optical illusions where you see the two faces looking at each other, and then the mm-hmm. goblet, and then the two faces. Because at any given time, it can feel more like coaching, and other times it feels more like uh, like therapy. What I found in in my work with executives is, you know, generally I don't see people that aren't at a or I, I generally people don't come to me. I should say. Who aren't real? Who aren't at sort of in the upper third of the progress of their career already? So it's not a matter of them needing to build their business model or you know gain industry knowledge or anything like that. They already have those things, right? Mm-hmm. What they re- the question is why aren't I as successful as I could be or I think I should be? Mm-hmm. And so that's where the coaching you know the coaching focuses on performance. But when you want to you know uh, pick up the uh, you know look under the sheets as to why that's when you get to the psychological issues, the developmental issues, unresolved trauma, those sorts of things and other sort of um you know uh, neural processing uh, aspects of it
1: right. So I'm definitely hearing if you're if you're looking to kind of look under the sheet like you said and wonder what's kind of driving maybe some of these, behaviors, beliefs, and ways of maybe patternings, you're probably going to be looking to find a therapist or working with a therapist. Mm -hmm. If you're focusing on performance and elevating your performance, maybe coaching is something that you're looking for. Mm -hmm. Um, But I would just kind of create some space here to ask you, what would be some clear indicators that you want to be working with a therapist versus a coach or with a coach? versus a therapist. I think we've got a lot of people now today who are interested in growth and development and being kind of the, the best version or wholest version of themselves Mm -hmm. and kind of in quest or on, you know, on the mission to finding either kind of partner to work with, whether that be therapist and coach. And Mm -hmm. yeah, what are some of those indicators that would help someone figure out where to look and where to start?
0: well the first thing that comes to mind is um there's a level of sort of stability emotional stability that you need i think in order to benefit from executive coaching and so if you're struggling with anxiety disorders or depression or unresolved trauma i don't think that going to a co- i don't think going to a coach is the right thing to do until those issues are worked on and and You know, not, I don't think, you know, we're all, we all have problems and they all last. We take them to the grave with us. It's not like, it's not like we're ever over it all, right? Mm -hmm. Think about the Buddhist image of an onion. You just keep peeling it, but it's infinite, right? So what you you want to do is have enough emotional regulation, um, enough of, um, you know, because you might be done with your past, but your past may not be done with you. And if it isn't done with you, then you really have to resolve those things. Um, So I think that if that's more the issue, um, you know, people come to me, you know, with, uh, you know, like, say, a a coaching client will come and say, yes, things are so bad at work. I, I don't know what to do. I'm frantic. I'm suicidal. So, you know, all of that. And my, you know, my thought is, well, I really have to figure out whether. The you know the 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 depression the anxiety the suicidality are those things simply a result of the problems they're having at work or you know sort of the stresses that are involved or are those things or should we front load those things and and deal with that because that might be the cause of the problems at work right mm-hmm. so the, you know this this going back to your original question it really you really have to get to know someone. Uh, for a while before you can figure out where to guide them. And so what I'll do often is I'll just think, you know, engage with someone for a month or two and say, let's meet, you know, let's meet for a couple of months and then let's, you know, look at and do a review of everything we've talked about and then uh, create a strategic plan for going forward. And that might include seeing me as a coach and getting another therapist or vice versa. Right. Um, if I think someone else would be a better coach for their, for their, um, you know commercial needs. Then we'll find that person, and I'll be the therapist, or find them a therapist. Whatever it is, right? Um, I think you do have to spend some time getting to know each other because you never really get the true story in the first couple of sessions. You okay. get the narrative that the person wishes was true, mm-hmm. or that, what they, the you know, the kind of the the uh, what's the good word for it, the simulation, uh, right. which you know, in which they live their lives, but if they're if they're not functioning well, then their simulation isn't working for them and you got to sort of deconstruct it.
1: Right, yeah. Have you found that um, it's been beneficial for your clients to work with both a coach and a therapist simultaneously or do you find some breathing room between the two or it's specific to the client?
0: Completely, you know, completely specific to the client. You know, very often you don't have the luxury at work to take six months or a year to be able to work things out. Like there's a decision to be made. Right. But so you're about to be promoted, you're going to step into another job. The um the company wants to know whether you've got the chops to do it and whether you've mm-hmm. got the stability to do it. So it really depends on the situation.
1: Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you for that clarity. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to move into talking a little bit about executive function. I read <laughs> some of your literature on this and um definitely wanted. To talk to you a bit about how you are updating and expanding the definition of executive function. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that we could start by kind of what is the traditional way that executive function has been defined, mm-hmm. and what are you discovering and kind of um, arguing we should kind of update and expand this idea of executive functioning?
0: Yeah. well, the um, I, I am 70 now. So I was, I did my doctorate in the early eighties and I started studying psychology in the mid seventies or so. And so all of everything is sort of uh, historically it's contextualized historically because all of these things are all of these ideas are in constant flux. Yeah. But the, after world war two, when with the rise of neuropsychology, Right, where people were, you know, had these injuries, dysfunctions. And so neuropsychology grew out of this, um, the need to assess people's functioning. And so this notion of executive functioning started to develop. And it was primarily cognitive, right? Mm-hmm. So people thought of it as a completely um, intellectual or abstract set of abilities. Um, and it was uh, considered to be housed in the prefrontal cortex. And so the the neuro from the you know the 20th century was that the difference between humans and other animals is our expanded prefrontal cortex and our abstract abilities and our cognitive abilities are what uh, you know separate us from other animals and that's and that's what people attempted to measure. So that's the background, sort of the pre 1970 1980 context. So when I started practicing in the 80s people would get referred for executive functioning deficits hmm. and they were just just about always men because women weren't thought of as having executive functioning because men were executives and women weren't right yeah. i don't think i got any women referrals yeah you know, any female referrals for executive functioning oh, so again yeah. another piece of contextualization right mm-hmm. all of the, all of the stuff we call science um, is actually just an epiphenomena, I think, of the culture and the biases and the prejudices and all of these things. Mm-hmm. I certainly never got a minority referral for executive functioning, hmm. right? Except if someone had frontal brain injury, and you know that was just thrown into the mix. So you've got to put that into context. Yeah. Women, women didn't have executive functioning because they weren't executives. Hmm. Just to, to, to just. Again, you know, look under the sheets about what really the science in quotes is all about. Um, And so what I found in practice was that people were coming with these um, with these complaints of executive functioning. And at first it was, well, people with head injuries and people with frontal injuries and all of that made sense. But what I found out throughout my career, what I'm what I'm taught to look for is what I find. You know, and so when yeah. I got out of school, I had to go through almost like a, what is like a debriefing program. I had to, I had to go through like a, a unbrainwashing process, sure. yeah. and I had to allow my clients now to teach me what was going on. Mm-hmm. And so client after client, I would see they would refer it, especially kids and adolescents. They'd be referred with executive deficit problem, but they were as smart as you know, they were as cognitively capable as you and I, mm-hmm. but. They had anxiety disorders, depression, family dysfunction, parental psychopathology, you name it, right. right? And so as I was doing psychotherapy, I said, well, you can't really talk about executive functioning as a cognitive process alone because the cognitive and emotional networks are all interwoven in the brain.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Back then I, had, I hadn't, hadn't studied neuroscience for decades. So it was just sort of a general, a general idea. Um, but as I studied neuroscience, and as you know, new technique came out and new new things were were discovered. It was clear to me that um, this whole prefrontal homunculus, who's supposed to control the brains of smart men, mm-hmm. really is not an adequate in, uh, explanation for for what's going on in executive functioning. And so, the more I studied, uh, more I studied about the brain, the more I realized is that you know the brain is again contextualized in in the history of evolution right and we have these multiple brain systems the brain is not monolithic it's a government of all of these systems some of them are primitive some of them are more modern some of them we met most of them we share with other animals some we share with maybe a few animals like elephants and whales highly social intelligent you know social mammals mm-hmm. um, and so i came to I, I started saying well how do i how do i explain the fact That when someone comes in with the presenting problem of executive functioning um how do i how do i figure out how to explore what the real problem is sure because i can't really accept the dogma that's been given to me because it just doesn't fit the data Mm -hmm. and so um that's when i started thinking about these other brain networks that are that contribute to executive functioning and for children and adolescents for example um the question is, how do you, you know, not just how well do you, are you able to sit in a classroom and pay attention in second or third grade, which by the way is highly unnatural for someone that age, right? right. So it's like this cultural context that expects them to do something that's in place because, you know, however many few hundred years ago, someone decided there should be a school system, right? Mm-hmm um and so if they're if they're having trouble sitting still in the room it might just be a developmental phase it might be that things are horrible at home it might be that they're being sexually or physically abused you know mm-hmm. what i'm saying mm-hmm. and so i had to i had to not just take the diagnosis or the presenting problem of executive function deficit i had to re, i had to sort of reframe it to say okay problems with what we think of as cognitive and abstract executive functioning Mm-hmm. is the end result of this complex set of processes and it can fail in multiple different ways and so diagnostically you have to figure that out before you make a decision instead of just giving a child who can't sit still a stimulants sure. or sedatives right to mm-hmm. think about what's the cause of this and so if you expand your thinking about the brain to a government of systems and my model has 3 separate executive systems. One is the, the first one is the primitive system around fight flight and arousal and, and regulation. You know the amygdala and other parts of the brain are, are the, the hub of that system. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the second system is re- overlaps with the traditional one we think of coming from the prefrontal cortex, but it actually is um, you know a frontal parietal system. Um, because in order for a brain to adapt to uh, to a four-dimensional environment, you know space-time environment, it has to be able to sequence time, which is a specialty of the frontal lobe, and space, which is a a, a specialty of the parietal lobe.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So think, for example of why why is it so why is it so important for an athlete to visualize what it is they're doing right before they're doing it, it's it's not because executive function is only a matter of timing. It's a four-dimensional process. It's a space-time process. Yes. And that really speaks to the frontal parietal involvement. So that's the second executive system. And that's the one that just has to do with problem-solving, abstract reasoning, adaptation, or strategy, that kind of stuff. And then the third executive system is grounded in a system that was discovered during the 90s, uh, which was originally called the default mode network. Well, it was called that because no one knew what to make of it. It was a set of structures in the brain that became active and were coherent in their activity. In other words, they were all interrelated um, and they would become active when we weren't doing any doing a task. Right. Right. And so another contextual bias in the West, you know, is that if you're not if you're not actually doing something, you're not doing anything. Right. Right. Whereas in Eastern, you know, from an Eastern perspective, Eastern philosophy, it's like that's really when you're doing more important things. Mm-hmm. So. um you can get, you can see how all the biases of gender perspective, action versus uh, self-reflection, all of those things sort of weave into whatever model, whatever uh, creative fiction we call science, right? And mm-hmm. so in, in using this three-part executive model, and again, I don't know, I'm not saying this is the right model. I don't know if it's sure. right. It, to me, science is uh, science is like a coral reef. It just keeps building and building. And so at this stage, given the data, this is a pretty good model. And I found that it was a, especially helpful with executives, mm-hmm. you know, working in coaching, because they would, you know, they would lay out everything they were struggling with and the things they were good at at all. And I'd look at these three systems and I'd say, well, this system you've got down pat, you know, you're having a really hard time relating to your, your you know, you've been promoted from a bench engineer to a manager and mm-hmm. you have no clue how to interact with people and you've never had to. Right. And that is what the DMN does. The DMN is involved with self-awareness, creating a theory of mind of other people, what's going on in their mind. It's the foundation of empathy, compassion, all of those things. And um, those people just weren't used to thinking that way. And often the reason why they ended up as bench engineers is because they weren't bothered by relational issues. So they just focused and they became, you know, the... uh, the, when I was in school, being a nerd was a negative thing. Now all the nerds run the world, right? Yeah. So that was that was the, uh, you know, that might be the problem. So a lot of answers for people I started working with who were in the um, the aircraft industry, the answer to their problems sometimes was demotion,
2: mm-hmm. like
0: they had to go back to the bench because they got, there was a thing back in the 60s called the Peter Principle, which is you get promoted to your level of incompetence. Mm. And nobody wants to, you know, demote you because they like you. So right. you just just in a bad job or a job that's a bad fit for you. Mm-hmm. So um, that was the beginning of it for me is seeing that, oh, you know, these Western models of progress are very different from how f- through most of it, through all of evolutionary history up until, you know, maybe 100 years or so with industrialization, people grew up in an agrarian cultures or family businesses where they just gravitated to what they were good in. Right. Right. Now we end up in all kinds of bizarre places doing bizarre things that are bad fits for us. Hmm, Yeah. And And we blame ourselves.
1: Yeah. It's really interesting. One of the things that I had read out of your literature was this idea that mothers with kind of high levels of executive functioning, right, in this kind of dynamic, well-rounded way,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um create healthier um uh, a- attachment styles for their for their children. I may not be actually rolling that out, but there's, you know, there's a greater health and and you know, um Not experiencing maybe anxious attachment styles or, you know, things along those lines. And so as I read this, I was really thinking about um, leaders or leaders of companies, organizations, even, you know, leaders on all levels, if there is a healthier balanced type of operation throughout their executive functioning, you know, what does that do for health or impact within the people they're leading and the cultures that they're driving? Could mm-hmm. you speak a little to that?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I went back to, uh, you, everyone knows, about, well, everyone knows the word attachment. In mm-hmm. psychology, attachment has a p- pretty specific meaning, which is this, this line of research that began back in the 50s and 60s. And a woman, Mary Ainsworth, um, sent her researchers into the homes of mothers and like ten-month-old children, and they just became—they sat in the background, became part of the furniture until they, you know, they were—they weren't uh, an issue anymore—and observed how mothers interacted with their children. And you know, be, but back in the sixties, of course, women didn't have executive functioning, right? And whatever they were doing with their babies was just maternal instinct, and had nothing to do with intelligence, right? And so, if you look at the, the descriptions of the of the ways in which Ainsworth looked at how mothers were interacting with the children who had who were securely attached to their mothers. It's just so clear that they were they were regulating affect. They were doing very sophisticated abstract reasoning. They had a theory of mind of their child. They were empathically attuned with them. And so if you look at that, you realize these women who created these children who felt safe had these three executive systems functioning well, they were regulated, they were integrated, and they were passing that on. They Mm -hmm. were passing security on to their children, okay? And if you look at the biochemistry uh, of of relationships and connection and attachment, the mother-child dyad, that binary star system that's created between a mother and child is the root of all relationships. It's just abstracted, you know, um, up to families, to tribes, to, you know, uh, team sports, to armies, to countries, all of those things are just higher level abstractions of the basic biochemistry of attachment.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Right. And so if a, if a, a CEO, for example, right doesn't have those experiences. They might be brilliant. They might have like, they might be the smartest person in their industry, right? right? But they may not have the emotional regulation that's required to be as successful as they could be. And, or they may not have the interpersonal skills or sensitivities Mm -hmm. they need to be successful. And so if you're a CEO, you're already successful but you don't you're not as successful perhaps as you feel you could be sure and you have this this in, this instinct that you have kind of a dark passenger like there's something inside of you that's keeping you from moving forward and i've had some ceos tell me that they even they've even personified it like it's a it's a dark man that visits them at night that mm-hmm. type mm-hmm. of thing um and that's just a projection of something inside and so my you know my one of the greatest joys in life is finding someone who's, who's successful, but is haunted and figuring out what else is going on inside of them so that they can free themselves from that. So they can be done with that and move forward and not just work for a living, but really love working. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: So there's this idea that, I mean, we're kind of talking about what I'm hearing is there is self-awareness there's emotional intelligence and then there's social intelligence mm-hmm. on top of kind of the, the IQ and the, the genius of the industry or the mastery of the industry in which you're working.
0: And, and um, one more layer, Cami, under yeah. that, the layer beneath that is emotional regulation. Mm. That's that first executive system. Cause if you don't have that, it really is hard to deal with any kind of stress.
1: Yes. Or to create any sort of safety in that environment.
0: Right. For yourself or for others.
1: That's right. I'm curious of, you know, if you are a top leader or just even a person existing, how do you create strength and health within these different kind of buckets for yourself? Mm -hmm. If you are noticing that maybe you're really struggling with self-regulation or, you know, you're not very attuned to kind of others' needs or how to care for yourself or them, or, you know, maybe you're lacking one of these places. How do we kind of take responsibility and strengthen um, these different buckets for ourselves?
0: Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I think that the first step before you talk, before you even get to the buckets, the first step really is a question of vulnerability. Because I think a lot of people get to where they've gotten to because they've kind of created a mythology about themselves, about the world and all. And it protects them yeah. from, from their their limitations. Because the, you know, the 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 sort of the the culture is make believe you don't have vulnerabilities and limitations. So mm-hmm. I think that the first, the first step for me with anyone really is to make sure that they learn to equate vulnerability with strength. Right. That in order to in order to move forward, you can't you can't hold on to the to uh, to, to rigidly to the ideas and beliefs that got you to where you are. Sure. Because those things got you here, but they're not going to get you to the next step. But people tend to continue to repeat the things that have gotten them success because they it's hard to imagine that they could actually change and even get more successful.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, even just to join you here, I think even as an athlete, when you're learning a new skill, you kind of have to go a few steps backwards before you start moving forward. So if you're inviting vulnerability into, you know, your healing process or growing process for the first time, Mm you've got to be willing to kind of disable, like not to have stability in your performance or even kind of the trust in yourself you're going to have to destabilize to then strengthen right. to a, a greater capacity
0: right right and you hear it all the time i mean i the sport i pay most attention to is baseball and you hear that the, the 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 best coaches if you ask them about potential the first thing they usually say is that the young person trying to get into the sport is open to learning
2: mm-hmm. they're
0: good students you know, and what that means is that they are willing to listen, and they're willing to be vulnerable. Right. And, of course, it's the same thing in therapy. And, you know, it's the same thing in, uh, in, in coaching and all of that. And so I think that's what I work on first, I try to find whether someone is um, how rigidly they have to adhere to their mythology, right, in order to regulate themselves emotionally, because right. the the more emotionally vulnerable someone is, the more upset they are, the more traumatized they are, the more rigid their defenses are going to be. Mm-hmm. So there's a fragility there that doesn't allow them to be flexible, mm-hmm. right? Another good thing from sports. I mean, in so many sports, I mean, try to hit a golf ball when you're stiff, right? It's, right. All, it's all of that, you know, It's it's there's so many metaphors for this. And and I think that's why coaching uh, or I should say coaching and and uh, athletics and business are so similar. Mm-hmm. you know the the end, the product is different, but so many of the philo- so much of the philosophy, you know, is the same. So you know once once I get to the position or in a position where I, I feel like someone understands or has a conceptualization of vulnerability as a positive thing. Uh, as an openness to learning Mm -hmm. then we go through the different systems and usually it's pretty it's pretty obvious you know like there are there are executives who lose control at work and scream at people and yeah and and make a create a very hostile and comfortable environment Mm -hmm. and very often all they really want is to have a, a you know a safe place to work in and because they're so dysregulated and frightened and based on however they were treated They explode, creating exactly the opposite of what they wish they could create. Sure, you know, and Mm -hmm. so one. So affect regulation is at the core of all of this: the ability to be to be maybe not calm in a crisis, but to be um, regulated in a crisis. Right. Another interesting thing that that um, I try to teach everyone is that if you are if you are afraid. Or if you're highly aroused or you know or activated that first executive system inhibits the other two executive system
2: Mm.
0: no when you're scared there's no real learning right and this applies to the classroom if you know if you've got children who are you know who are uh, hyper aroused um, traumatized abused live in violent communities or say a minority student who has a, a majority, like a white teacher, and they've been told not to trust you know, uh, white people,
2: mm-hmm. their,
0: their brains are gonna shut down. We don't learn from people that we don't believe like us or have our best interest at heart. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, kids, uh, all of us do better with working with someone who we know cares for us and who we care for. That activates neuroplasticity. That goes back to that early mother-child relationship in the biochemistry. Of mm-hmm. that. Right. And so um, the uh, arousal is the is I always talk about the need to be an amygdala whisperer. Right. You have to be like able <laughs> have to be able, yeah, to to help before you can do any real work, you have to help them be calm enough, create an alliance with them. So you can be kind of like a prosthetic frontal lobe and a and a, and a in a sense that the ability to help them confront higher levels of arousal without you know, without going off where the other brain systems are inhibited, because you need all three of these systems to be involved for change. Mm. Right.
1: So it's definitely that is the best place to start, because once you're able to regulate that or calm that or, you know, have it at a state to where you can have access to these other systems, you can start kind of growing in that way and strengthening these other places or or being able to kind of lean into and on these other systems.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so if that's that's where you have to start. Like I said, because you have to make sure that that's intact. And for some people, it is, and yeah. for others, it isn't. It really depends on you know when you do like a three sixty, and mm-hmm. you find out what it is that uh, you know what what how does this person behave at work, yeah. and what sorts of feelings do they engender? You can get a pretty good idea of what their strengths and weaknesses are. And it may not be you know it may not be anything they're aware of. Often isn't because at work. We have this rule you know you don't call me on my act and i don't call you on your act and so you can go on for years not getting proper your accurate feedback from from the people around you but that's the first thing generally like i said most people um most people that i work with their second executive is not the problem they're thinking you know if they're not aroused if they're if they're not frightened they can strategize, they can think through the problems. And if they're having problems with the business model, I'm probably not the right person unless, yeah, I mean, if they need information about their industry, I probably don't, I probably know less than they do about it, you know, so I can help someone connect with mentors, say. Mm -hmm. But I find very often too that um, people, they do know about their industry. They just haven't been able to put the pieces together. Like it's, it's almost like a case study you know, that they yeah. that they studied at Wharton. But when it comes to applying it to their business, they're so wrapped up in the emotion and the relationships and the pressures at work, they can't apply what they know. So sometimes they already have the information. It's just associated in some other part of their brain. And so I can help them find it and then apply it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So, and in those cases, I'm kind of the student, you know, where I just ask questions. Right. And if they are teaching me about it, if they're playing professor, they can talk about it. Right. It's like a lot of people are really great with their employees and they go home and they don't know how to relate to their family and their, you know their children, their spouses at all. And so we can dissociate. We can have really good abilities in one context and not in another. Right. Right. And so that's you know, that is, is a part of it. And then the third the third system having to do with relationships, you really have to. we all differ in our in our self-awareness in our in our ability to think about other people, our compassion, our empathy. A lot of this is developmental. It, it rests on our temperament and biochemistry, genetics. It also depends on what kind of family we had. A lot of families don't ask any questions about what's going on for you. Parents think that their job is not to discover their children, but more to tell their children who they should be. Right. So, grow up in a family like that, you might even might not even be aware of the fact that you have an internal world. You might have never built one.
1: Mm-hmm. So, I think it when you talk about okay, so we have regulation, we have so uh, emotional intelligence, we have self awareness, and we have social intelligence. There is this kind of perspective that I. Um, read that you have on this uh, intelligence versus wisdom and i found myself really drawn to this and kind of interested in how the modern world really puts high value on intelligence and you know just this idea that an intelligent leader is maybe just one one type of leader but when you start to bring in all of these other elements of executive function you're getting a more well-rounded leader and that might kind of cater to the definition of wisdom more so i'd like to start by asking it from your perspective how would you define intelligence and how would you define wisdom and kind of what is what is your your perspective of this and, and the differences
0: yeah well i guess most basically intelligence is the um the capa- it, it's the ability to hold a good deal of information and manipulate it and use it to solve problems and um, you know and and create perhaps new variants of the, of existing models or paradigms those sorts of things those are the people that i think you know that we think of as intelligence you know bill gates mm-hmm. type of folks um bill uh, steve jobs uh, things people like that um so intelligence is largely cognitive, right? It's largely a function of the second executive uh, system of that frontal parietal system. Um, wisdom is, is not in, it's, it, and also intelligence exists with the, within the individual. Mm-hmm. And of course, when, when individuals get together, there can be a synergy, you know, where right. you, so you, brains can link to other brains and so a group of brains can be more intelligent than a single brain if they figure out how to link up and communicate and share and all of that stuff. So, but for the most part, intelligence is something that exists within, within brains. It's information exchange. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like what, uh, you know, maybe, the, you know, it's uh, AI. You, know, you can think about AI is going to be more and more intelligent. Also, as a, you know, as a sidebar, the more intelligence, intelligent AI gets, the more the more stupid it's going to get, too, because it hallucinates and makes up things just like people do. So, it's a, yeah, so it's, um, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like garbage in, garbage out of humans. If AI is based on the Internet and all the information on the Internet, it's going to be a combination of very good and very bad things Yes, because that's what we are. Yes. So, oh my God, I lost. So I'm going back to wisdom. That's why I got off track. On my, I lost my track. So, so wisdom. When I think of wisdom, I think of it's a social process, right? Wisdom is something. Wisdom is relational, Mm -hmm. and it's not no. It's not just knowing something, but it's putting the not putting the intelligence in the in the social emotional context. So that what we're doing is we're um, telling people we're we're sharing information giving insight talking to other people in ways that that is taking their perspective and their needs and who they are into account and giving giving them you know it it sounds like information but what makes it wisdom is that it feels personal Mm. and part of that person's you know sort of uh development of the self right Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. if you if you look at like who's who's smart, like Bill Gates is smart, who's wise, people will say Jesus or Buddha, right? right? right. So both, you know, all until Oprah is is wise, people think mm-hmm. of Oprah as wise, okay, so that you see that difference there, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that, um, and again, not all, I mean, as uh, I was talking about wisdom and age, I wrote a book called Timeless on um, on the health, healthy aging brains and the, you know, the achievement of of wisdom. And I had someone in the audience say, you know, my, uh, you know, my father is really old and I can attest to the fact that wisdom and age don't always come together. Sometimes wisdom shows, uh, age shows up all by itself, right? I said, yeah, that's true, right? So there's something about the process of of, of how you live your life, how you think. And I think, uh, you know, one way to think about it is a balancing of the development of these three systems Sure, allow you to gain the in. The intellectual and and uh, personal maturity to realize the importance as you get older, you know, of being able to, uh, you know, give uh, or share th- information or be interact with people in a way that nurtures their soul. I guess is a word you could use. Although I'm not particularly religious or spiritual, but it's something deeper than building their brain.
1: Right, right. Mm-hmm. I'm curious of what what role does the body play in You know, I think we've talked a lot about executive functioning and, you know, what is the somatic experience that contributes to wisdom and or this, you know, kind of overall well functioning or healthy executive function?
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I think, you know, when you think about going to the second executive system, when you think about um, the frontal parietal system, the parietal lobe grew out of the hippocampus, Mm -hmm. which is a more primitive system. That is like in rats, for example, the hippocampus is sort of a, a, a map of th- of space around them. So, for example, if, if you take, a, if you take a, a female rat and you give it a little rat pup to take care of, its hippocampus begins to grow because it has to be thinking about collecting more food, taking care of the baby, finding its trail around, you know, to to protect the baby, to you know, to hide food and do all of those things. So the Hippocampus is a three-dimensional map. The parietal lobe grew out of the hippocampus, but it adds the extra layer of the fact that we can have imaginal three-dimensional space,
2: mm-hmm. and
0: we have an imaginal external three-dimensional space. We also have an imaginal um, uh, a, a sort of a an internal image of our body, and then we have these two maps that can overlap, so we can have a map of our body in space. That's how I learned how to sell, serve a tennis ball, right? My right. coach, my coach said, imagine a chain, and you you whip a chain so that wave goes through it, mm-hmm. and you start at the wave starts at your feet. You have the ball down near your near knee in your left hand, and as the as the chain reaches your knee, you reach you you throw the ball up, and by the and the ball has to reach the apex just as the whip of the chain comes through your hand, right? So. You have the and then I got the next day I was able to serve a tennis ball and up until then I had lost many of them in all directions right wow. yep and so I think that the um anything that we're conscious of of course has to go through the cortex mm-hmm. but I think our cortex the infrastructure of our cortex relies on internal somatic information and also our musculature and you know our bone system and all of that right and so to be grounded in your body allows you to feel safe in the world mm-hmm. one of the reasons i always recommend people do martial arts is that it makes you feel it it gets you really aware of every, of all of your body especially balance the way you interact with other people and from you know once you learn martial arts you carry yourself very differently around people yes you know and so I think it's essential, but I think that top-down bias we have in our culture. So we we think of the brain as everything, and we think of the brain as separate from the body, but Mm -hmm. it really isn't. The body is the infrastructure of our brain. Sensory motor movement is the infrastructure of cognition. Right?
1: Yeah, it's so fascinating. I think just in your examples of talking about just children in the classroom. So I was diagnosed with dyslexia and ADHD. Mm -hmm. And this kind of concept of intelligence versus wisdom, and just kind of this more holistic dynamic perspective of wisdom, and not Mm -hmm. just intelligence. I think I was tuning into that quite a bit, because as I look at these different buckets that you're speaking about with executive function, You know, rather than just doing an IQ test where there are some limitations based on the learning differences that I've experienced, you know, if you were going to test me on the full realm of what we're speaking about makes up executive function, I'd probably come in at a much better rate than just what they're looking for with the learning differences. And so it's been really a pleasure to kind of tap into that and kind of look under the hood of the car with you on how you're, you're seeing that and teaching that.
0: Imagine if you if you could we could go back say 150 years Mm -hmm. and there were, you know, you you grew up on a, you know, you grew up on a farm or you grew up in a family that had a family business, you probably wouldn't be evaluated by how well you could read. Right. People would probably notice and you would notice just how much you seem to love to jump, jump in things and run and climb and do all of that stuff. And maybe you would develop, you would develop a set of skills that matched your abilities and your self-esteem would be associated with your sense of the ability to do things. Mm-hmm. In our culture, we have this like really narrow tube that we, you know, squish people through and then we label them with all sorts of things and medicate them. And it's just, it really is, if you step back from it a bit and you think about how our brains evolved Right, the, the the system is just crazy. I mean, it's just crazy. I mean, I can't. I, I was told, like, when I read letters reverse, my mm-hmm. eyes go all over the page and stuff. And you know, my teachers would, you know, look at me and go, "Nothing will ever come of you." Right. Right. And so, a dozen books later, right, that I've written, it's like, well, what's you know, what are, what were they talking about, and what was it based on? Yeah. You know, I thought that what they were doing was silly and irrelevant. So I didn't do very well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and here, and here you are. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm curious of what is, if you were to give maybe one or even two simple places for individuals to start, um, in, you know, maybe a practice to either ground or, um, an awareness practice, just something. I think about just the impact. Like what can some of our listeners take away from today that will kind of help the collective at large? What can they take into their work environment, into their home environment, or even just a healthy practice for their their selves? What would be one or two things you would share to just focus on or tune into?
0: Yeah, the, the first thing, I don't know if this answers your question. I'll share what comes to mind. Right. Yeah. What comes to mind is to. Try to step back from however you're defining a problem, right, and step back from it and see whether you can't come up with some alternative ways of describing it. In other words, like for, you know, talking about your situation as a kid, Mm -hmm. you were like diagnosed dyslexic, you said, and something else?
1: Uh, ADHD.
0: ADHD, right? Well, everybody, yeah.
1: That's yeah. what I think too. Like <laughs> yeah, yeah. everyone has ADHD now.
0: Well, the reason why we, we diagnose everyone ADHD is because we have a medication for it.
2: Mm. Right?
0: Yeah. Right. There's that old story, you know, that there's a they there's a, a man looking under a street light, right? And they they said he said well, someone comes by and says, What are you doing? He says, I'm looking for my keys. I lost them. He says, You lost your keys here? He says, No, not here, but this is where the light is. Right. Right. And so I think that's what happens is that when, you know, if uh, if if a kid is having trouble in school and we have a medication for ADHD, then that's what we diagnose people. Right. You know, so what is ADHD? It's a diagnosis. We get very impressed by the DSM and all of this stuff, you know, these diagnostic manuals. But the truth. But if you step back from the problem, maybe you've got a kid who has different strengths, different developmental history, uh, different sequencing of things. I mean, maybe, you know, my son uh, took was way behind in reading,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and now he never stops reading at 17, right? And so these rigid expectations and this sort of one-size-fits-all model
2: mm-hmm.
0: is really, really is not the best way to run anything, a school system, a business, anything like that. To be able to look at, you know, like Joseph Campbell used to say, well, you know, follow your bliss, what is it that makes you happy and try to figure out how to build a life and to build a career around what makes you happy and do. And every, you know, I think about also Jeff smart wrote a book called top grading. And he talks about how, you know, every year get rid of that bottom 5% Mm. and, you know, and, and keep building and building in the direction and perfecting the things that you, that you love and want to do. Yeah. So I think my, I don't, I don't know if I have any particular tips for people like, you know, here, do this and you'll, you'll be happy. Um, it's more sit back and and look at your life, and if things aren't working that well, don't assume you're the problem, right? Or assume an employee is the problem. Maybe it's the system. Maybe it's the expectations. Maybe mm-hmm. it's the culture, right? And um, take some time to imagine alternative possibilities and play with them.
1: Yeah, I-, I love this call to action to pulling back the lens and. Taking a a broader view at what is exactly in front of you, rather than being so close and pressed up to the glass, if you will, on the problem. Yeah, Yeah, and and practice loosening the reins on, like you said, rigid ways of thinking and doing, and boxing ourselves in.
0: Yeah, and I think what you know, if if you have consultants or coaches or therapists, whatever it is, I mean, I, I think one of the most important roles I've played in my career is listening to people's stories and and saying really Mm -hmm. you know and 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 you know what do you mean am i you think i'm not telling you the truth i know i know you're telling me the truth as you see it but the question is are there other ways to see it that don't you don't lead you down the same tunnel and and the same bad results again and again you know let's try something different and see what we can learn from that
1: Absolutely. Wonderful. I want to open up the space if there's anything else that you have coming down the pipeline for yourself, any new releases on books or projects that you have coming out that you'd like to share, or if you're just continuously kicking butt in your own world and <laughs> <laughs> helping others get healthy. Um, but I just want to open up some space if there's anything you'd like to share as we, as we wrap up here. Yeah,
0: we'll see the uh, just if if you anyone's interested i have a website and it's uh, drlucozalino.com and uh, my i have a couple of colleagues former students that are working with me on that so we have our you know some of my writings their writings on there on these and other topics if you're interested in the in the questions of uh, aging and wisdom i wrote a book that's called timeless that you might be interested in and at the moment, we're writing a book on executive functioning, but it's probably not going to be ready for another year or so. But um, if you if you uh, keep in touch with the website, you'll probably, you know, uh, get a get a notice of when when that is going to be available. So thanks everyone for your uh, your interest and your patience with me.
1: Uh, outstanding! Thank you so much for your wisdom and your insight today. We appreciate it so much. Best of luck with
0: everything. Hey, thank you.
1: Thank you to those who have joined us today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take the opportunity to share with a friend, follow mindful warrior radio and leave a review. To learn more about mindful warrior and mindful warrior radio, please follow us on Instagram at the real mindful warrior and check out our website at www.mindfulwarrior.com. I look forward to our next discussion here on mindful warrior radio.